Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we are continuing our conversation on Scott's book, Pastor Paul, Nurturing a Culture of Christiformity in the Church. Um, today, we are going to start looking at the seven examples that demonstrate how nurturing Christiformity was at the heart of the Pauline mission. And this episode, we're going to begin by looking at Paul's culture of friendship. So Scott, you begin this chapter by talking about the need that pastors have for friendship. Um, so pastors, you say pastors today, perhaps more than at any time in history, need to become part of a network of fellow pastors because they need friendship. Um, so what? why do you think this is so important for pastors? Why is it important for pastors to have friends? Well, I want to talk about that, but I also um, had a wonderful conversation with two people this week who said that this book should be required of all search committees for pastors. So um, I, I like the idea of uh, search committees thinking about categories other than great preachers. And one of the things I've discovered with pastors um, especially, let's say, in the last 15 to 20 years, is that pastors who are in networks of friends and other pastors have, have natural allies in the issues that arise for pastors. They have people who understand them, uh, people who uh, share their burdens, who know their joys. And what I've discovered is that, you know, pastors can be a very lonely job. It's it's really hard to think of it that way uh, because pastors are, are givers. They are providing. They're, they're helping. Um, but friendships are based on equality. Whereas pastors, in a very real sense, I mean, this isn't this isn't taught in seminaries, I don't suppose. Uh, pastors operate in a level of inequalities, not in the sense that they think they're superior, but that people look to them for the role they provide as pastors, mediators of grace, as we talked last time. And instead of, of pastors being able to relate to someone as an equal and a friend, they, they find themselves guarded and protective and performing a role. And this really hurts their own human, let's say their own humanity, their own love relationships with other people, their own friendships. And so I find that pastors are in need of natural allies and friends. I know our pastor meets with pastors in the Northwest or in the Northern suburbs. Um, I think they get together once a month. Um, I've talked to uh, a number of pastors who get together with others I've also talked to pastors who don't get together with others who can be very lonely. Uh, and uh, I, I would really, I, I would say this is a bigger issue today 
than in any time. And, and I'm not quite sure why is the, mm. is the demands are goofier and COVID just made it uh, five worse. times worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that's good. It's good. I, I wonder, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I wonder if some of the shift um, to more independent churches away from like denominationally connected churches um, I'm just thinking of, of where I'm at now, where so many of the pastors go through their seminary training together and their placement process, you know, all at the same time. And they might be placed in different places around the country, um, but they have that history together. So it's natural for one of them to pick up the phone and call another and say, here's an issue I'm dealing with. But if you've if you haven't had, you know, those touch points with other pastors that are working in a similar context, um, to enough time to build those relationships, I could see it would be really hard once you're in the job to establish those relationships. Uh, you could, but it would take yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. You know what I find? You know, uh, along this line, I find the pastors in our D-Min program at Northern Seminary become really good friends. Yeah. And I think they all, they get together in a classroom and they're not pastors now. They're students together and they form friendships. And yeah. I'm kind of amazed at some of these friendships. And I, and it's it happens in the master's level cohort. And a lot yeah. of them are already working in churches. But they they form a, a like a Facebook page. Well, you form the Facebook page for us. <laughs> uh, you create this Facebook page. And these students talk to one another. Mm -hmm. And they begin to share one another's burdens and joys. Yeah. And they develop a relationship that is independent of their role in church, their hierarchical, you know, their guarded relationships. Right. right. So um, I, I, I covet for pastors um, margin, sufficient margin in their schedules mm. to be able to form time for relationships that, uh, with people who can become their friends. They, Pastors need this. Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, Laura, it might be true that most pastors' only friend is their spouse. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, God bless our spouses. <laughs> uh, but but we probably need more than one friend. Yeah, that's true. And it's helpful to have friends that are not people in your congregation like, I think you can have friendships with people in your congregation, but necessarily they're going to be of a different nature um, than with people who are outside of those networks. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's this is one of the things that I love about this chapter is you get into the classical definitions of friendship. So we're kind of trying to work our way backward to the time of Paul and think about how Paul would have understood friendship. Um, and you yep, yep. give examples from Aristotle, Aristotle, Cicero, and Plutarch. Um, and, and these, I think, are helpful. I never would have thought of this. But as I read through the book, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is so helpful to understand how Paul would have understood his relationships with people that he worked with um, and the people he was doing ministry with. So I'm just going to read a little bit about specifically from Aristotle, from the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, and this is the definition that Aristotle uses. He says, to be friends, therefore, persons must, number one, feel goodwill for each other, that is to wish each other's good, and number two, be aware of each other's goodwill, 
And number three, the cause of their goodwill must be one of the lovable qualities mentioned above, namely what is useful and good and pleasant. So this, this I think, is a great jumping off point um, by looking at Aristotle. And then with Cicero, you talk about accord or mutual goodwill. And Plutarch adds this idea of virtue to the mix. So let's get into this. What are some thoughts you have about this classical definition of friendship and why it's helpful to us? Well, Laura, the, the ancient world had lots and lots of writings and discussion about friendship. And these were males who were friends with males. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some of these um, pinheads, I'll, I'll just say that, They're, these are brilliant scholars. Uh, did not believe they could be friends with women. And so, mm-hmm. and didn't see women's friendships as anywhere near as good as their friendships. So yeah. we have to live with that. Yeah. But these friendships were reflected upon constantly. And we find it, especially in Aristotle, who has a, a whole book on friendships, book eight. And, um, and I'm really impressed with his first two points, that we have to feel goodwill for each other, wish one another's good, and be aware of each other's goodwill, which means uh, you're going to have men telling one another that they like one another. Mm. You know, that doesn't, uh, that's not the typical language we find men participating in, Mm. in our culture today. So uh, I I think that this is, um, a free communication of one another of love, of saying, you know, I really like being with you, mm. that sort of thing. And the other person reciprocates. And um, the, he also believes that all, Aristotle also believed that friendship should be rooted in virtues. Uh, so that that was a point. Well, uh, C- uh, Cicero contributes that it should focus on accord or mutual goodwill. And he says, mutual goodwill toward each other is both tested and sustained by actions, conversations, and general circumstances. Friendship in action means each person in a friendship contributes to the other and can be relied upon in times of need. This is so important. These are equals. You can only be friends with equals. So if we form friendships with people, we are actually treating them as equals. Mm. Um, and Plutarch uh, uh, kind of just took it to the next level by repeating these people in different words. So um, friendship is a consensual, committed, caring, and conversational relationship. How about those fours? <laughs> Four Cs. Consensual, committed, caring, and conversational relationship in which persons think well of each other and say so to each other. All right, now, here's, here's what was important to me. When I began to work on this, this uh, book, Pastor Paul, mm-hmm. one of the first things that I thought about doing was starting with friendship, because I had read lots and lots about friendship in the ancient world, and I've read numerous books on this, and I, and I love to read what Cicero and Aristotle have said about friendship. So I thought, okay, we'll start with this and we'll we'll show how Paul's relationships are, are rooted in friendship. Mm. And what really uh, surprised me 
was how little Paul says about friendship and how, and I don't know if I'm anticipating something where you wanted to go. <laughs> uh-huh. um, of, I, I, I don't believe there is a minute that Paul operated with, say, Timothy or Epaphras or Barnabas, which wouldn't have been perceived as friendship and would have played out right there in the Aristotelian framework. I don't think it could ever have happened without that. Yeah. So I wonder, I, you're, you're the philosopher. You, you study <laughs> philosophy, so. Yeah. Did you did you ever study yeah. uh, Nicomachean ethics with uh, Oh, yes. 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 Oh, yeah, we read that. I You know, I don't think I'd ever come across his definition of friendship, though. And I think that was so interesting to me. But I think that idea of the development of virtue, that it takes place in the context of relationship. That's something yeah. I, I, that I've been kind of thinking about this idea that, yes, you do. It's this pairing of equals and the idea that you are learning from each other. You're benefiting from this relationship, but it's a mutual you know, benefit. Um, but you're challenging each other. You're growing together, but you're also caring for one another and sharing burdens I mean, goodness, this is what pastors need. So I, I think, I don't know that Aristotle was thinking about that, um, but I think that Paul made use of that framework um, to develop the kinds of relationships that he wanted to have um, in and among the people that he worked with. And I think this, we see this modeled by Jesus as well. It's not as though yeah. Paul necessarily came up with it. And, um, and of course, their uh, their purpose was to grow in virtue with one another. It was. Yes. I mean, this is this is a Christian idea. We're just going to change the virtue, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, and it, it makes me think we've really got to choose our friends wisely. Um, yeah. You know, are are the people that we are investing and also giving of ourselves to are they the kind of people that can help us develop virtue? Um, you know, are those relationships up to that sort of challenge? And I think you know. It's, I think, a great thing for pastors to reflect on, um, you know, do they, they have these kinds of people in their lives? And if not, where can they develop these kinds of relationships? Yeah. yeah. Well, you say you point out that according to Aristotle, there are three different kinds of friendship. There's utility, pleasure and virtue. And then you encourage pastor, pastors to ponder their friendships and assign their friends to only one of these categories. And just to kind of define these, you say utility is someone to whom we speak often because we're doing the same thing that they are. Um, you know, maybe you're coaching Little League together or you're showing up, you know, waiting for your kids after school together. So you chat with them, um, but they're people that you don't necessarily think of when you're not in that moment with them. So that might be a relationship of utility. And those are, I would say, sort of the first step towards a friendship. And then the second category is pleasure. And these are people whose company we enjoy. Um, and distance doesn't damage the friendship um, because it exists, again, only in those moments of presence. So we really enjoy those people. Um, and when we're apart from them, uh, it doesn't hurt the relationship because we enjoy them enough that when we're together, we'll enjoy them again. Um, and then virtue 
And this is, you have a long quote from Cicero, but this, I think I'm going to read it because I think it just really defines this. It says, for when persons have conceived a longing for this virtue, they bend towards it and move closer to it so that by familiar association with that person whom they have begun to love, they may enjoy that person's character equal that person in affection and become readier to deserve rather than demand that person's approval and vie with that person in a rivalry of virtue. And then you say that this seems the most like what describes Jesus' relationship with his disciples um, and the friends of Paul in their relationship with Paul. So do you want to say something about those three categories? I I think that this... uh... Aristotle's categories are helpful for us all to consider. Mm-hmm. You know, even Martin Buber in his famous I and Thou uh, talked about it-it relationships um, and I-thou relationships, um, I-it relationships. I I remember um, when my son was younger and I was coaching, um, let's say, basketball, uh, travel basketball program. Um, I would talk with one of the other coaches who was whose son was playing um, four or five times a night, a, a, week, a week. We would talk in the evenings about what we're doing and what's planning and who we're going to play and strategize. When the season ended, all conversations were off. Mm. Um, then I, there's other people that I like to be with is, you know, it's pleasure. But I don't, I don't think about them and don't do much with them uh, in the off season, let's say, or I, I can't wait to go to SBL and see some of my friends. But I don't call them during the the year. Mm. But then there are people that are close friends that I like to be with, who help me grow. Uh, I help them grow, and they're they're equals. So I think that this is a really good thing for for pastors. And even for search committees, as I uh, I keep thinking about that statement that yeah. all these people have made to me, um, what kind of friendships we could ask a, a search in a search committee? What kind of friendships do you have? Mm-hmm. Who are your close friends? I mean, I think if a pastor says I don't have any, first of all, I hope they wouldn't admit that if they did. Uh, you know, that would not be a good thing. But if they say, I don't have any good friends, they're not going to develop good friends either. And that's, they're going to be dry. It's going to be a dry bone if they're not Mm -hmm. careful. So I believe, I believe we should ask this question and we should ask how they're going to form friendships in the church. I have pastor friends who say they should never have a close friend in the church. I don't know what you think about that, but I, I get a bit nervous about that. Um, and then I have others who say, yes, I have close friendships in the church and I've been betrayed and it's been mm-hmm. painful. Yeah. What do you think, think? you think? Yeah, I think there's potential for that. So I think it, this is where it gets really hard because I think you should have friendships within the church. But I think they are always going to be characterized by that distance um, that you are in a leadership role you are their pastor and your job is to care for them and you need to be free to be able to do that. So there's always going to be, I think, some level of separation of how, yeah. how, how much you can enter into a real relationship of equality. Um, 
it, it would be a challenge. I don't think it's it's impossible, but the potential for betrayal is very high when you have those kinds of close re- relationships. But also your ability to be objective, I think, would be challenged. Um, and so that, that I, would you be, know, that'd be tricky. I, I would say uh, the danger of betrayal is the nature of all good, loving relationships. Yeah. So I would say... That could happen. Um, and I do believe that there will always be a respectful, there should always be a respectful relationship between, let's say, a pastor and someone in the church who has become a good friend. That can be tra- that that friendship can be transcended at times by the role relationship, but it should be re- respected. Yeah. You know, um, for uh, I'll just say this. I'm friends with our president, Bill Scheel, mm. uh, and with my provost, Dean Lynn Coick. But both of them have to make decisions at times, uh, and they know I don't agree with them. Yeah. All right. But I don't find that that threatens our friendship. Mm. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I do know that there are people, if you do that sort of thing, they will see it as a betrayal and they'll. They'll disown the other person. I, I don't I don't believe that that's appropriate. But yeah, um, it is. I, I do think pastors have to be uh, very wise in their choice of friends. But I think it is unwise to make a decision in advance that I won't be a close friend with anyone in my church. Mm, yeah, I, I I get nervous about that. Yeah. And and I think these are people you're you're called to care for and to love and to nurture. I think it too, and this might be a strange association, but I'm raising teenagers right now, and one of the things you know they talk about is you're called to parent, not be a friend, um, and that sort of distinction. And when they're older, sure, you can be more of a friend, but when when you are um, still in the midst of having that that role of responsibility um, that there needs to be a little bit of separation. So I wonder if that plays out in the church as well. Like there are times and places where, you know, real friendship can happen. um, But there are also times and places where there needs to be that sort of separation. Yeah. 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 Good. Interesting. All right. So there's, what is necessary for friendship? That's sort of where you turn in the text and you start laying out the classical understanding of the components of friendship. And you've got trust, loyalty, honesty. Um, these are a few of the ones that you are pulling again from the classical literature from Seneca and the Greeks. So talk to us a little bit about these categories of trust, loyalty, and honesty. Seneca said, if you consider any man, okay, this is a male-centered society. If you consider any person a friend whom you do not trust as yourself, you are mightily mistaken and you do not sufficiently understand what true friendship means. Well, I think that's a profound statement. And Mm -hmm. all good, loving, you know, the word friend, philos, is one of the words we get for love. It can be translated love. It's not just... Brotherly love, um, that that C.S. Lewis's four categories are a little too rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a loving relationship. Uh, yeah. Christians can talk about love as philia and philos. Um, but trust is absolutely fundamental 
to genuine friendship and loving relationships. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's a, a critical element. Loyalty, um, loyalty means faithfulness. It doesn't mean do whatever I tell you and don't ever disagree with me. Um, that's an insecure person, narcissist, power mongering type guy who demands loyalty. That's not the same as loyalty mm -hmm. in a friendship. This means that we will be true to one another and that we will, um, we will stand with one another. We will support one another. But remember, in classical friendships, there was always honesty which is the third one that you drew upon. Mm -hmm. And the Greeks used the word parousia, and, and it's often translated boldness, but the Greeks and the Romans loved the category of frankness. Mm -hmm. A true friend who was trustable, trustworthy, and who was trusting, and who was loyal and worthy of loyalty, was also frank with their friends so that they could... Uh, they would not be flatterers. A lot of leaders want sycophants and flatterers. And Plutarch writes an amazing essay, How to Tell a Friend from a Flatterer. <laughs> and it's it's really worth reading. It's a little long-winded at times, but uh, it's really such a helpful category. Mm. And I do know that one of the problems we've seen in studying about Tove is far too many pastors want loyalty and don't want frankness. They yeah. want flatterers. Yeah. And I, I really believe that good friends can say things to one another because of the, let's say, the relationship is sufficiently broad to be able, that it allows for frank communication without it being perceived as betrayal. Yeah. And I, that that is, okay, go ahead. Well, it just makes me think that we've got to have people in our lives who love us enough to tell us the truth, um, yeah. but do so because they love us and because they want us to to be better. Um, but I think that that has got to be critical. And it gets harder and harder to find those people the more you move up in leadership. I think it becomes more and more difficult to find people who would, who will be willing to tell you the truth um, because it's that kind of dynamic can often just breed people who tell you yes all the time because you're the leader. Um, yeah. So you really do have to sort of be intentional about finding people who will tell you the truth, um, but will do so who will care about you enough to do it in a way that you can hear it and that you would be willing to learn from it. So it takes humility on the part of the pastor to be able to be willing to hear those things. And it takes a tremendous amount of trust in that relationship um, I'm just thinking of my best friend, um, who has at times said, I think you're wrong here. Uh, I, I think you need to make that right. And she's even told me like, I'm going to text you every day until I you <laughs> can tell me that you have, you know, taken care of this issue, which yeah. she does because, you know, she's very persistent, but I so appreciate having a person like that in my life who will say, I think you're wrong here. And I'm, yeah. and I'm going to hold you to that, doing what it takes to make it right. Um, but but it is it is true that um, a person like that has earned the right to speak like that because of because let's say she's trustworthy, and 
and your relationship is sufficiently broad, there's yeah. bandwidth there that this is a part of it without it being without it functioning as betrayal. Right. And uh, the person who, when you criticize, uh, who disowns you, either you have mistaken your relationship, mm. the trustworthiness of it, yeah. or that person is not, that person wants a flatterer. Right. And I, I cannot tell you the number of times that we have heard this story of pastors you know, the so many people they're seeing toxic behaviors, and they don't go to Facebook with no, they don't go to Twitter with two million friends and blast away. They go through the right channels and protocols and yeah. policies, and they say, We think that there's a real concern here, and they get gaslighted by the yeah. leaders because yeah. they only want flatterers. You know, Laura, I want to say. Why do we have so many pastors who only want flatters? What has happened in the church that we can't have frankness with yeah. our uh, our fellow leaders in the church? I don't know. I don't I, know. I know you agree with me, but I mean, <laughs> I do, and I've experienced that, and it's so hard. It's so hard because you think I'm only telling you this because. I see red flags it's true. and I care about you, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and yeah, that's so hard. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about, so Paul is sort of swimming in this idea and these definitions of friendship. Um, and then he is combining this with what he understands as a covenantal understanding of love and friendship. So Paul is sort of taking all these ideas and thinking about them in the context of the God he knows in scripture. And um, he's coming up with his own sense of what this means. And you say, we need to re-ask what the meaning of love is by asking what love meant in the Bible. So let's talk about that. What does love mean in the Bible? And you raise a couple different categories of covenant, presence, advocacy, direction, and effective. So I'll let you say a little bit yeah. about those. Okay. You know, the um, uh, let's, let's start with this. No one who saw Paul operate with his um, co-workers would ever have thought of anything other than these men are friends. Mm. Paul is a friend with Priscilla yeah. and Phoebe and... Aquila and Timothy. He's friends with these people. And yet, Paul never calls any of these people his friend. Never calls them philos, which is the, this is the word that you would have expected Paul to use. And this was, for me, the turning point in this chapter, mm -hmm. uh, in, in this study, yeah. is I was looking for Paul to conceive of Christian relationships in terms of friendship, but he didn't want to let us go there. And yet he does. Of course, what Aristotle and Cicero and Plutarch and Seneca say about friendship is not because they're Greeks or Romans. It's because this is the characteristic of friendship from the beginning of time. Mm. This is how people relate to one another. So they're phenomenologists, as it were. They're bringing out what is what is the nature of the relationship? And yet Paul does not call these people friends because 
He knows what friendship is in the Greco-Roman world, and he knows the relationship that he has with those who are in Christ like Timothy, and he knows that this relationship transcends their relationships. Mm. He knows that what he experiences with Priscilla and Aquila cannot be called what Aristotle experienced with his friends or what Cicero or Seneca or Plutarch experienced with their friends. There's something here that's different, a new dynamic. And I like to I like to use this uh, the framing of love in the Bible on the basis of how God loves. And what God does is he forms a covenant. And I often call a covenant a rugged commitment. Because mm-hmm. as you look at God relate to Israel in the pages of the Old Testament, it's anything but smooth, smooth relationship day after day. You know, <laughs> it's just like it's just like marriage. It's like it's learning to love another person. Mm-hmm. There are some days that are just amazing, and other days we go, whoa, what happened to that? What happened this morning or whatever? Mm-hmm. So, but there's a rugged commitment. So it's a covenant. We've made a covenant with one another, a promise, a vow. And this is what happens in marriages. We make a covenant commitment with one another. It is a commitment to be with a person, a commitment of presence. I will be with you. You will be with me. Mm. This is what God says to Israel. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will see my presence in the tabernacle and in the temple and in the Holy Spirit, and in Christ. And at the end of time, God will be with his people. That's the language of Revelation 21. So presence is so important. But there's a side to love and in the Bible that transcends friendship, where it is advocacy. And I think this draws upon Aristotle. I mean, I'm not saying Paul said, oh, Aristotle, what was that third point he made? He wasn't (laughs) doing that. But true friendship, true love, is advocacy, is that I will be in your corner. Mm. You know, in the last few years, I've had to do this at times. I've had to say, I am going to go to bat for you in this situation because I trust you and I believe in you and I'm going to fight for you. Yeah. And that's what that's what an ad, that's what the Holy Spirit is called in the in the Gospel of John. Parakletos. Parakletos. It is the advocate, the paraclete, the one who defends us and gets in the corner with us. Hmm. Love, and this again, is similar to Aristotle. Um, Aristotle saw friendship, Cicero, etc., as um, a friendship based upon mutual growth in virtuosity or virtue. In the New Testament, This dynamic is shifted and deepened by a commitment to grow in the power of the Spirit through the grace of God into being more and more like Christ. Mm -hmm. So we have a different virtue ethic, if you want to call it that, than Aristotle and Cicero had. We grow in Christoformity. And um, uh, one of the most amazing statements about God in the Old Testament is that his love for the people of Israel is of such that you could say it is 
we always get in trouble when I say this, but I say it every time. It's erotic uh, <laughs> in the sense that it's the word used for a man and woman in their intense relationships, their intimacy is used for God in Israel. So it is an effective, emotional, intimate relationship of love that advocates and makes oneself present with the other person in order that we can all grow in Christ-likeness. That's what Paul, that's how Paul saw relationship. And therefore, he didn't call it philos, friendship, philia. He, he called it siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. It transcended uh, friendship relationships, which are entirely voluntary, to where it was mandatory. It was now the relationship that can only be described as siblings because we are now in the family of God and we don't choose who's in the family of God. We learn to love who's in the family and who's at the table. This is the dynamic of the church and the dynamic of Paul's churches. I think Paul liked this because no Gentile chose the kinds of friends that were going to show up in the church. No Jewish believer is going to choose the kinds of, you know, slave, no, no free person is going to choose the slave, you know. So these, these relationships cross one another and say, now we're siblings, and this transcends our relationship. It is not a chosen relationship. It is, well, you could say it. It is a relationship based upon what God chooses, mm. not what we choose. So we are elected to become siblings. And I like to say whether we like it or not. Or we could say <laughs> we are siblings and you're going to like it. Yes. Well, there's so many so, things I'm thinking about this. Like it's it's um, that idea of friendship and commitment across status lines. If you think about the early church that... Um, that friendship is voluntary. And so we tend to choose people that are on the same social level as ourselves, maybe the same educational level, those kinds of things, because it makes friendship easier. Um, and what you're describing is people who are placed together, who may have nothing in common except for Christ. Um, and and it it's removing that piece of sort of natural likability and replacing it with this idea of commitment to one another. And then the other thing that springs to mind, the difference between friendship and siblings is that um, just the, the time difference. So friendships are voluntary and for a season, we may move in and out of friendships, but siblings are permanent. Yeah, um, yep, good and, point. And I think about Paul... Maybe, I don't know if this is what he was getting at, but sort of setting the stage for these are eternal connections. Mm -hmm. um, that in Christ, these these commitments that we're forming are, are you know, going to be with us, that we are in Christ together. Um, and so we've got to, to learn how to transcend maybe differences and form these bonds in Christ for all time. Um, and that's that's a totally different level of commitment to one another than we experience in other places. Yep, I agree. That's a good point. Hmm. 
Well, looking at some of the specifics of um, Paul's actual friendships, and this, you end the chapter by looking at some of the specific relationships that he had. And I think what's fun about this is um, showing it in action. So we start out with John Mark, who is someone that Paul had a disagreement with. Um, and we see as they work that out, um, a sense of reconciliation. That yeah. they we're working through some really difficult challenges um, and and it's instructive to us. I'm glad that that um, sort of fallout in their relationship is recorded for us so that we can learn that that's a natural thing and how people work it out matters. Um, and then we have Phoebe demonstrating Paul's advocacy. And Epaphras shows us the centrality of trust in relationship. And then Timothy um, shows us a friendship among equals. And I think that also is, is almost a mentoring relationship as well. So we have examples from Paul's life of his actual friendships. Do you want to say anything yeah. about that? Well, no, I, I think uh, those were the terms that I saw. You know, John, Mark, they had to, they had to reconcile eventually. Yeah. John Mark comes back into play. Phoebe, Paul gets in her corner and says, hey, you take her. She's she's special in my life. She's going to be special in your life. You know, Philemon could be understood this way, too, yeah. with uh, Onesimus. Epaphras, I, I'm always impressed. This is a young man who becomes, I, I don't know if he's young, a young believer who not too much longer starts churches in the, in the Lycus Valley. So Paul trusted him, and Epaphras had to come ask questions. Timothy, I I get kind of irritated with the the way um, we emphasize Timothy's a young man, Paul's an old man, and it's like a like a sixty five year old helping a twenty year old or a fifteen year old. Yeah. Uh, the way the way Timothy shows up as co writer of Paul's with Paul in letters, and the way Paul writes to him. Um, as like you and I do know how to do this work together. This is what I would tell you to do in this church. And Timothy is right on board here about what to do in Ephesus. Paul trusted Timothy because Timothy and Paul were were near equals. So mm. I I think we we are privileged to see these relationships played out in the pages of the Book of Acts and then letters of Paul. So I yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, this is so good. And I, I think it's helpful to understand where Paul is getting his idea, you know, from the classical world about friendship and then also how he's reworking it um, by reframing mm -hmm. it in terms of covenant love um, and looking at those characteristics of rugged, affectional commitment, presence, advocacy and direction. And then I think you've already touched on it, but this idea that Paul didn't actually call his co-workers friends, which is sort of a surprise, um, but instead he referred to them siblings. And we'll talk about that next time when we continue our conversation about Pastor Paul. And I want to tell you all, our listeners, that we look forward to being with you next time as we continue this conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 